0: And thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from 32nd Universe by Karen Masters and first broadcast live on the 4th of June 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support.
1: Thank you very much. Um... Um, it's a pleasure for me to, to join you today, um, this evening for you, for most of you, I believe, um, here in Pennsylvania. I, I'm very near to Philadelphia. Um, it's the afternoon and uh, the grands people um, just outside have chosen this moment to mow the lawn. So if you hear some buzzing, that's what you can hear. Um, but um, as Cleo said, let's, let's try to put aside um some more down-to-earth concerns it's 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 a tough thing at times um but hopefully i can oh, provide some much-needed sorry. escapism this yeah. morning uh, yeah. excuse me this evening um and the book this the 32nd book that we've written and i've got my copy of it right here um is actually set up i think for the age of distraction um it aims to cover all of cosmology in short articles um they're not supposed to be um Overly technical, it's aimed at a popular audience. It's not a textbook, but it's a sort of dip-in book um, type style. Um, It was uh, great fun to work on this book. Um, It was a collaborative book. And so here um, I have some pictures of my co-authors, and that's the front cover of the book also. Um, Charles Liu, who you see there, is a professor at um, the City University of New York, Staten Island, um, and also affiliated with the American uh, Museum of Natural History. So the picture of him in front of the Rose Dome there. Um, uh he kind of put this kind of together. put this together. He put together the team. So he invited me to participate in this along with uh, Professor Seville Salour, who is a particle physicist who works at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Um, so um, depending how good your American geography is, New York, New Jersey and Philadelphia are all very close to each other. And so last summer, we, um, we actually got all of our families together to celebrate um, the release of this book. Um, And so that picture, you can see us there celebrating the, the, the release of the book. Um, so, second, I don't know if you've, you've heard of this book series, um, but this is a series of books from the Quarto group, uh, publishers, Quarto knows. So here are just some, a selection of them, 32nd Universe, 32nd Feminism, 32nd Medicine, a variety of different books. They're commissioned books. So the, uh, the editors find people who they want to write on these topics and we're paid a fee to do the writing. And then all of the profits from the book, um, go to the publisher. Um, so, um, so that's how that works, um, as someone relatively new to publishing, this this was a new concept to me, but it was interesting to be involved. Um, so the way we set up the book, um, it's, it's the sort of seven-step path to understanding the universe. So the, the articles in the book come in seven um, different categories that are listed here, the origin of the universe, the observable universe, the quantum universe, the physical universe, the metaphysical universe, the fate of the universe, and the multiverse. Um, now, this was a collaborative book, and Charles, as the lead author, set up those um, seven topics, and we sort of divided um, the articles between us. Um, as it happens, you know, my interests really are in extragalactic astrophysics and sort of the evidence um, and the observable cosmology co- observational cosmology. So how we understand or how we know what we know about the universe is is much more my interest. Um, So I actually only contributed articles to the origins of the universe, the observable universe, physical universe and the fate of the universe. I'm going to leave the more speculative um, quantum universe, metaphysical universe and multiverse um, topics out of this talk and focus more on um, the topics that, that I contributed to in the book that tell a story about how we know what we know about the origin and the fate of the universe. Um, Now, alongside the sort of topical articles in the book, we also um, did lots and lots of biographies talking about how science is done, the people who do science. Um, Each article comes with a very short uh, three-second biography. Um, Each uh, section also has a longer biography. And I had the pleasure of writing three of those biographies um, for Hypatia, um, Henrietta Swan-Levitt, and Vera Rubin. Um, Cleo mentioned I'd previously written um, uh, a a chapter in an anthology of Uh, stories about women in science. Um, That was on Mary Somerville, who's another interesting woman in the history of cosmology and astronomy. And it was a pleasure to to write more about these three women as well. Henrietta uh, Swan-Levitt and and Vera Rubin will come up during the story. Hypatia is a little bit before um, the topics I'm talking about, really. Um, She was a very early astronomer, um, the first woman to have been recorded as having been an astronomer and did some very interesting things in, uh, in ancient Alexandria. But I won't Talk more about her here. You'll have to read the book or read about her elsewhere. Um, one really fun thing about working on this book were the graphics. Um, so each of the articles is accompanied with a really um, vivid and sort of realistic montage of, uh, of real data, in some cases real images, sometimes um, some of the theories. Um, these are all done by this graphic designer named Steve Rawlings, who actually I, I've never met, but I, I went to his website and he has these really um interesting um sort of collage type graphic designs here are some examples of that um, and you're going to see some of the artwork that he did for the book um, throughout this talk as i illustrate the topics with the artwork from the book so even with this structure and these short articles it's a big ask to uh, sort of summarize the 14 billion years of history um, and uh, and, you know, all of the topics that, that go into our understanding about what happens in the history of the universe into 30 second chunks. So I'll do my best. Um, but we are going to be giving things quite a light touch. So um, I will encourage you to um, obviously go <laughs> look at the book. But also, uh, you know, if, if different topics um, strike your interest, um, you could probably do an entire talk on any one of the topics that I talk about. I mean, I hope by the end of the talk, you will at least be familiar with the things that are shown on this slide. Um, so I'm showing an example of a galaxy. I'm going to talk about those um, close to my research heart. The contents of the universe here, which we'll, we'll cover. Um, and this uh, diagram, which is, uh, is a NASA visualization, which I have annotated with um, a telescope that I use all the time. Um, is supposed to show the history of the the entire history of the universe, and we will discuss a number of these uh, epochs and significant events in the history as we go along. So, as I mentioned, galaxies are my sort of main love in terms of my research. I, I would call myself an extragalactic astrophysicist. Galaxies really are the building blocks of the universe. Um, this is an image of my favorite galaxy, the Whirlpool Galaxy, which is um, up in the. Uh, in the, the, the Big Dipper, near the Big Dipper, the plough, the con- that con- constellation or asterism. So it's a, an interesting uh, object in the northern sky. And here you have the visualization done by Steve Rawlings that, that accompanies the, um, the chapter on galaxies in the book. So galaxies, you know, the majority of things in the universe are in galaxies and galaxies are the way we observe the universe for the most part. These are the sort of fairy lights, um, if you like, on the um, on the branches of the Christmas tree um, that kind of at, at, in the darkness of the universe light up the structures that are out there in the universe. So in order to understand the universe, we have to understand galaxies. And that's what a lot of my own research um, has to do with um, uh, There's a lot of galaxies out there. Um, So this is uh, a set of 255 galaxies from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. So the SDSS um, will come up a few times in this talk. Um, It was a really uh, important uh, survey uh, in the history of cosmology, in the history of observational cosmology. This is the telescope that we use, or one of the two telescopes we use now. Um, It's in uh, Apache Point Observatory in New Mexico. Um, It had been closed down for COVID um, until two nights ago, I believe. We're just starting observing again um, because um, New Mexico is coming out of some of the lockdown and stay home orders. Um, So we're still observing with the Sun Digital Sky Survey. We still take spectra almost every night. Um, but it has had a number of sort of finished surveys and it has a 20 year history of surveying the universe. And one of the most famous surveys is the 1 million galaxies survey, which was released um, by SDSS in 2008. And so these 225 galaxies that you see are some of those 1 million galaxies. And this is, you know, a big data type, uh, moment in astronomy, right? We're starting to get into the millions, uh, in our catalogs, um, And it was the size of the data set from SDSS, which inspired Galaxy Zoo, which Cleo mentioned in the intro. And this is something I've worked on for the last 10 or more years now. I'm the uh, project scientist for Galaxy Zoo. Um, And we still meet, the science team meets every two weeks um, to discuss the papers we're working on. Um, We still have galaxies on the site. So we still invite you to go to galaxyzoo.org and help us classify galaxies. Um, we have classified all of the Sloan galaxies now, but there are other surveys that are coming um, or ha- are done. So there's one called DECALS, which is currently live. Um, and Galaxy Zoo is also now part of this largest universe of projects. So if classifying galaxies isn't the way, you'd be interested in becoming a, a citizen scientist on the Internet. Um, If you go to galaxyzoo.org, you can find links to the Zooniverse and find hundreds of other projects that use this um, technique of inviting people to classify objects or draw on objects or transcribe uh, handwritten material or all kinds of things that are best done by humans, better done by humans than by computers. So zooming back into galaxies, what's what's inside them? Well, the reason we can see them is that they have lots of stars in them. So the Milky Way, for example, the galaxy we live in, has two hundred billion stars in it. Um, so I wrote the article on stars uh, in the book, and that was that was was very interesting because I was teaching intro astrophysics at the time here at Haverford, and so, um, <clears throat> you know, stars are very interesting objects. They're spherical, giant, hot balls of plasma of gas with nuclear fusion going on in their cores. Um, you know, we see them as points of light in the night sky because they are so far away, um, but that they're, they're actually many of them are bigger even than the sun um, and just a handful are smaller. I apologize if you can hear the lawnmower. Um, the two mini bios that accompanied the stars uh, uh, article were, were kind of close to my heart. Um, they were Annie Jump Cannon and Cecilia Payne-Gaboshkin, uh, two women who worked um, on understanding our understanding of the physics of stars. Um, and one of my favorite T-shirts is I have this T-shirt which has the Lego versions of. Now, let's see if I get this right. Annie Jump Cannon here. Uh, no, excuse me. Annie Jump Cannon with the classification. So she was the person who classified different types of stars the first time. This is Cecilia payne poshkin who supposedly wrote the best ever PhD thesis in astrophysics um, in which she speculated or she um, not speculated. She dis- she revealed what she could understood stars to be made of, mostly hydrogen and helium. And this is uh, Henrietta Leavitt, who I mentioned earlier on, and we'll come back to her. So galaxies have lots of stars in them. Um, They also have material that's between the stars um, that we call the interstellar medium. Um, And this is mostly different types of gases. uh, But because most of the universe is hydrogen, most of the interstellar medium is hydrogen. And so I wanted to just uh, mention a little bit about um, some of the interesting things hydrogen does. Um, So here is a a little cartoon diagram of a hydrogen atom. Um, And so a hydrogen atom is made up of a proton and electron, um, and if they are aligned, um, they have one energy state, and if they are anti-aligned, they have a different energy state. This is a sort of quantum mechanics property that we call spin. Um, And we know this is real because we can detect the energy change. It's a very small change in energy, um, but it is a change in energy, and that energy creates um, some light. It creates some light that has a very long wavelength, actually 21 centimeters, which is a radio wave. So there's all these hydrogen atoms out there in the universe creating these radio waves when the electron spin flips relative to the proton, and we can go and detect them. And so the image that you see there of the telescope, Green Bank Telescope, West Virginia, is a telescope I routinely use to detect um, this transition um, from hydrogen in galaxies. And there I am in the picture with one of my former students standing near the receiver that we use to detect that. Um, That's right up at the top of um, of the sort of arm here of the telescope, right up on this platform. Obviously the telescope was, horizontal when we were standing on it um, not uh, tipped like it is in this image and there's lots of other things in the interstellar medium as well so hydrogen can be in different states Um, it can be in uh, molecules it can be ionized um, and you know some of the most beautiful I think uh, astronomy images that we have are of nebula and gas clouds in different ionization states Um, And different atoms, atoms of different materials, also create these emission lines. They create these very specific frequencies, and that will be very useful, as we'll see later. It's useful because we can figure out what they are, so we can use them like a barcode. Um, But also, the very precise wavelengths uh, mean that we can tell tell something about the motions um, of the atoms that are emitting the light. So this uh, becomes incredibly useful for us to understand the universe that we live in. So the galaxies, they have stars in them, and they have material between the stars. We also now know that they have dark matter in them. Um, And so here is the illustration that was used in the book um, to illustrate the article on matter bright and dark. We know that 84 or 85 percent of the clumpy material in the universe, the gravitating material, the material that makes galaxies, makes galaxy clumps of galaxies, is, is something that we call dark matter. Now, it's actually a little bit of a misnomer to call it dark matter, um, I think. We should maybe be calling it transparent matter. It's stuff that we, we just can't tell that it's there. It's completely invisible. It's completely see-through. It doesn't interact with light in any way. And it only interacts with other material, with the normal material in the universe, through its gravitational effects. Um, the jelly bean jar here is a, is a cute little um, visualization of just how much dark matter there is in the universe. Um, so the colorful jelly beans in that jar are supposed to represent the normal matter, and the black jelly beans are the dark matter. And you can just kind of visually see how much of the material um, that has mass, that has gravity in our universe is this dark matter. Um, So that's one part of the pie chart explained what this dark matter is. Well, not really, right? We haven't said what it is, but that's of course, because we don't know what it is. Um, And there's a lot of effort that goes into trying to work out what it is. And it turns out the details of what it is can impact um, the structure in the universe. So we talked about galaxies but galaxies clump and they form clusters and superclusters. and so the top of this um, visualization here is supposed to show that cosmic web of structure in the universe um, these bumps and speckles here are a similar thing but in the very early universe and here we have one such sort of cluster of galaxies that has been mapped out with its gravity to show that it's got most of its mass is offset from where um, most of the gases, where the stuff that is creating these emission lines is. So you have all this dark matter out there in the universe, and the details of what the dark matter particle are affect the structure formation in very subtle ways. Um, but there's a lot of people trying to work out those details. Um, the first place that we knew... Ah, yes, right. So the first place that we knew dark matter existed, for sure, was in galaxies. And just to understand um, why we're so sure that it's there, we want to kind of... Um, step back a bit and talk about gravity. Um, And so this is actually one of my favourite visualisations or favourite graphics in the book. Here we have Newton uh, at the top with apples falling down on the Earth and you've got the Earth in this sort of uh, space-time which was a dip in it. Now, of course, Newton was before space-time, so that's a bit of a fanciful addition. Um, Newton, but Newton, the conceptual leap that Newton made, and a lot of people have been talking about how he made it while he was on a stay-home order at his country estate in England because of the plague. So he wasn't able to be at his university. Um, But he made this conceptual leap that the force that was causing apples to fall to the ground off trees and the gravitational force that causes us to be able to walk around everything that we drop to fall downwards. What what Newton wondered is, could that be the same force that was holding the planets in orbit around the sun? Um, And he worked out that it would indeed work if that force were this inverse square law type force so here we have two objects with mass, and this is the kind of thing we teach in intro physics classes. Um, if they're a distance R apart, then the gravitational force between them is the, you, you multiply their masses and you divide it by the distance squared. So this is, we call it an inverse squared law. You go two times further away, the gravitational force drops by four times. Now that type of force um, works incredibly well to describe the motions of the planets around the sun and um, the motion of objects falling on Earth only when you get to very very high um gravitational forces or uh so very near the sun or around much more massive objects than the sun do we start to need to worry about the fact that it doesn't quite precisely work and we need einstein's gravity which so there's a hint at that here in the space-time being shown under the earth um but for a lot of what we do in astronomy and a lot of what we do to understand cosmology actually we use newton's gravity and one place um that we use that um is in in measuring the mass in galaxies So this is where Vera Rubin, who's one of the biographies that I wrote in the book, um, enters the story. So here we have an image of the Andromeda galaxy, actually, and um, it has stars in it and it has material in it. And we can estimate from just counting how much light there is, how much mass there is in this galaxy. And then we can use what we know about gravity to predict what the gravitational force is. And so how fast a star can be moving around this galaxy without flying off. If there's not enough force to hold the star in its orbit around the galaxy, it's going to fly off into intergalactic space. That's what this red line here shows. This shows the prediction of how fast stars could be moving in the Andromeda galaxy if if the only material in that galaxy is um, what we see in the stars. And you can see that that prediction um, goes up as the, the amount of material in the center of the galaxy increases or the amount of material is increasing as we're going out and then it starts to drop down as we uh, go past the edge of the visible galaxy and we start to see the same sort of behaviour as you see in the solar system, more distant planets orbit more slowly. Here you are in the centre, you kind of agree with the prediction, um, but it's not too far out when you start to have stars and gas moving far too fast in this galaxy for it to be held together by the material we can see. And it's the difference between this calculated line and the measured line that we call dark matter. Um, it was Initially, it was called the missing mass, right? There is mass missing in this galaxy. There must be additional mass there over what we can see. Otherwise, the whole thing would just fly apart um, because of these uh, motions that we measure. So Vera Rubin was the first person to provide evidence for dark matter in galaxies. Sadly, she passed away before she was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize for this work, um, which is a shame in my view, but that's uh, what happened. Uh, you might be wondering how we measure these motions of stars. We can't, you know, we can't, we get basically, we can't see them moving. You don't see a galaxy changing. You just get a kind of an instantaneous view of it. So how do we actually measure these motions? Well, we use a piece of physics called the Doppler effect to do this. Um, and so this again comes back to the fact that um, particular yeah. elements in the universe make, make these very, very precise emission lines. So very, very precise colors. So you will have uh, experienced the Doppler effect. Um, If you watch uh, Formula One Grand Prix, uh, this is something my family was very fond of when I was a child. So my Sundays are always full with the sound of uh, motor cars racing past um, cameras, which is full of the Doppler effect. Another place you'll hear it is if you hear an ambulance go past you on the street. Um, If the ambulance, when the ambulance is moving towards you, the pitch of its siren will be higher than when it's moving away from you. So the next time you listen to that on the street, you'll you'll hear the pitch of the siren change. Um, this this Doppler effect happens to all waves. So that's an example in sound. It also happens to light from galaxies. So here I have an illustration of that. So say you have a galaxy um, that is creating an emission line that is, at, or there's something in the galaxy creating this emission line that's at rest with respect to you on the Earth. You will get the sort of laboratory measurement. Um, you'll get the wavelength that we know we can predict from quantum mechanics that those atoms should create. Um, if the galaxy is moving away from you, the wavelength or the color that, that line comes at will be very slightly redshifted, very slightly moved to the red. And if it's moving towards you, it'll be very slightly blue shifted. So, this is an example of galaxies as a whole. Um, And a big surprise for cosmologists um, and Vesto Slipher here um, noticed this in 1914 when he um, first measured a bunch of spectrum of galaxies. um, They are almost all redshifted, which is weird um, unless you understand you live in an expanding universe. Um, So you can do it for the galaxy as a whole, but you can also do it for material in the galaxy. So we can see that galaxies are rotating and we can uh, measure the mass um, that must be inside them to hold them together. Um, So that's how we go back, that's how these measurements are made, using this Doppler effect um, in order to measure how much dark matter there is in galaxies. So moving on, in order to understand Vesto Slipher's observation that all galaxies are moving away from us, we need to ask the question, how far away are galaxies? And this is a big problem for astronomy. This is possibly the biggest problem for extragalactic astronomers, is knowing the distance to your galaxies. you know, we can't go and visit them. They're too far away. And so we need to use something in them to tell us how far away they are. Um, and we have two techniques that we use. We use either a so-called standard candle or a standard ruler illustrated here. So the idea behind a standard candle is that if you have something of known brightness, you can use how bright it appears to be from your location to measure how far away it is. We know that um, when you move something twice as far away, um, it drops, uh, its brightness will go down by a factor of four. It's another inverse square law. And the same with the standard ruler. If you have something of a known length in a galaxy, you can figure out um, a known length scale. Um, you can measure um, how far away that length is uh, by how, far, how, how big it appears. It's the principle that is used in um, some types of triangulation on Earth. So we have to figure out um, either one of these standard candles or a standard ruler. And actually, you know, astronomers have been working on this for a long time. Um, we've figured out a number of different ways of doing this. And so there is, There are entire branches of astronomy which are um, focused on uh, comparing measurements of the distances to galaxies from different methods. Right. We can constantly comparing these different methods. I'm going to tell you about just one of these methods. And that's because it was the one developed by Henrietta Leavitt, who, again, was one of the biographies I wrote. Um, The method she developed is now known as the Leavitt law. Um, And it uses a type of star known as a Cepheid variable star. So these are stars that vary in brightness. Um, They get brighter and dimmer over a period of days um, to months. Um, So it turns out that there's actually uh, Delta Cepheus. um, So it's the fifth brightest star in the Cephas constellation, which is quite near the pole star, um, is the prototype Cepheid variable. Not really a surprise. It's named after the constellation, right? Um, And it varies with a period of about five days. So this is um, the observatory that you see in the picture here. This is uh, where I normally would be working uh, if we're not uh, shut down uh, because of a pandemic. Um, This is the Strawbridge Observatory on the Haverford campus. Um, We have two telescopes we have a 16 inch and a 12 inch in the two domes. And my office um, is normally right below this smaller dome. Um, And we have a lab where we ask people to go and observe Delta Cepheus and measure the Cepheid variable uh, variability. Um, we are somewhat hampered by this tree, which is just to the north of the observatory and just covers the patch of sky where Delta Cepheus is, um, which is a shame. But that's um, that's life when you live on an arboretum. Um, so the Haverford campus is a, is a beautiful arboretum. So we love our trees. Um The fact that Delta Cepheus varies with a period of five days tells me it's one of the fainter Cepheid variables. So the important thing that Henrietta Leavitt noticed was that fainter Cepheids vary faster than brighter ones. And actually, the period of the variation could be used to tell you how bright the star is. So that means if you can find a Cepheid variable star in a galaxy, you measure the period of its variation and then you know how bright it should be. You know how bright it is. So by measuring how bright it appears to be in that galaxy, you get a distance to that galaxy. So this is just one of the ways we measure distances to galaxies. Um, it's, it's, it was one of the earliest ones to have been thought of. Uh, and it's also important because it was the method that was used to put galaxies on this plot. So this is Edwin Hubble's plot. He used um, the Leavitt law to measure um, distances to galaxies. Um, and he has plotted the distances in his, in his diagram in an astronomer's unit called a parsec. Um, Which is is a is 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 a is a large unit of distance, Um, and and then on the y-axis of his plot, he is plotting the recessional velocity of these galaxies. How far, how fast they appear um, to be moving away from us. Astronomers always like to point out that he made a mistake. He he didn't put kilometers per second. He just put kilometers. Um, So he made an error in his units on his graph. But it means It should say kilometers per second. And what this graph showed is that the further away a galaxy is, the faster it appears to be moving away from us. So not only do we have almost all galaxies in the universe moving away from us, but the further away they are, the faster they are moving away from us. And the way that we interpret that observation um, is that it has to be that it's the whole universe is expanding. So I just have my expanding diagram to try to illustrate that. If you imagine um, that you have um, little stickers on the surface of a balloon and you blow up that balloon, you can actually do this experiment yourself. The distance between any two galaxies will grow. um, And if the galaxies are further away, the amount the distance grows will be larger. So the further away galaxies are in the universe, because the motion, it's not a real motion between through space. It's a motion that's driven by the expansion of space itself. Um, The further the further away a galaxy is, the faster it should be should appear to be moving away from us because of this expansion of space. So this was a huge moment for cosmologists, just understanding that we live in an expanding universe and we can see that expansion happening um, because we can see galaxies moving away from us. And I would quite often ask, you know, how it is we're at the center of this and we're not at the center of this at all. If we, if we figured out how to move to the Andromeda galaxy, the observations would be the same. If you figured out how to move to a galaxy halfway across the observable universe, the observations would be the same. Any galaxy would see every other galaxy appearing to move away from it. And you can convince yourself that works in this two dimensional analogy. If you blow up the balloon, pick any of your dots as the center and you will see this behavior. So we live in an expanding universe, um, and this then led astronomers, led cosmologists to think about what happens if you run the clock backwards. If we're living in a universe that's expanding, there must have been a time in the past where everything was very, very close together. Um, This was um, called the Big Bang. This idea was called the Big Bang. I didn't write this article, as I note here on this slide, um, but I still know about it. Um, And, you know, it's an event that happens 14 billion years ago. I'm quite often asked where the Big Bang happened. And the confusing thing about the Big Bang is that it happened absolutely everywhere. It was the point in time where the distance between any two points in the universe was zero. So everywhere in the universe was inside the Big Bang. Um, it was a point in time, not a point in space. It is everywhere in space. So this is the beginning of the universe. Um, and, you know, y- you might be a bit sceptical um, about uh, this kind of huge conceptual leap just based on uh, observe- observations that all the galaxies are moving away from us. Um, and indeed, cosmologists and astronomers would would support that scepticism and try to think about, you know, OK, what else does this predict? Well, one of the things it predicts is that the early universe should be very, very hot. Um because when we move everything close together, um, um, the motions of particles get hotter. Um, all of the actually the wavelengths of all of the light get squished as well. Um, and so you just basically have more energy. The early universe is very hot, very dense place. Um, hot, dense things glow. You're familiar with this, actually. Um the the name we give for seeing this uh in the universe is the cosmic microwave background and we'll get back to why that is but i just it it is literally um the hot glow of the early universe now i imagine you've seen at least on tv um iron glowing hot and you might be familiar with the fact that red hot is slightly cooler than white hot um this glow uh that that hot iron has or the the glow of the embers of your fire is a type of uh, black body radiation that's a technical term um that we have in physics for this type of radiation it is the radiation that is or the light which is created by the temperature of an object every one of us makes this so humans create black body radiation uh, because the temperature that we are at is uh what it is the peak or most of the radiation we make is in the infrared so that's why people can be detected on thermal cameras right those are infrared cameras now the very early universe was very very hot and so actually made um a uh, made a black body spectrum um, which had its peak in the x-rays but that spectrum has been expanded with the expansion of the universe and we now detect it with its peak in the microwave part of the spectrum so beyond uh infrared so even cooler than infrared um it is the same uh It has an effective temperature of three degrees Kelvin, which is incredibly cool, just because it's expanded so much from the early universe. And we detect this, we've been detecting it for years now. Um, This beautiful visualization here shows some of the very important uh, experiments in the history of detection. So this top one here was the very, very first radio antenna, which was used um, to detect this initially. They actually detected it before they knew what it was. Um, There was this glow, um, sort of white noise coming from every direction. Um, The people who uh, were running this experiment thought it might be pigeon droppings, um, thought it might be all kinds of things. So they climbed up in here and they cleaned it out and they just couldn't make this glow go away. Um, And eventually it was realized that it was this cosmic microwave background. And they were awarded the Nobel Prize for that discovery, along with uh, one of the theorists who uh, explained what it was. Um, It's much easier to detect this if you can go in space. And if we go in space, we can actually detect that it's not precisely the same in all directions. Um, And so these are three space satellites. The most recent one was the Planck satellite that have been used um, to make measurements of this cosmic microwave background, um, which supports the uh, Big Bang model of the universe. Um, And the background image here is one of the most recent images of the entire sky. So this is like a map of the Earth, is the entire globe. Put on a flat plane. This is a map of the sky, the entire sort of inverted sphere put onto a flat map. And these speckles just show very, very tiny temperature variations. Um, it's actually a very precisely at three degrees Kelvin. They're one part in 10 um one part in a hundred thousand variations, so very, very smooth indeed. Um, but the tiny speckles we can detect are the seeds of structure formation in our universe. So all of the clusters and superclusters of galaxies that we see were seeded by these little um, fluctuations in the early universe, which we'll come back to. Okay, so back to Hubble's law. Um, I just want to have a little segue into the Hubble constant. Um, So, right, so Edwin Hubble discovered that there's this relationship between the distance and the recessional velocity of galaxies. And this is, you know, you probably all at some point in school or maybe more recently um, fit a straight line to some points. Right. Um, This line has a gradient and that gradient is something we call the Hubble constant. Um, If it's steeper, it, it measures effectively how quickly the universe is expanding. So if that line is steeper, the universe is expanding more quickly. And if it's shallower, more slowly. Um, The graph here um, with a picture of my former uh, postdoc supervisor, John Hooker, who sadly passed away in 2010. Um, This is a graph that he had posted on his door. And I think he enjoyed it as a sort of story in the psychology of science uh, a little bit. Um, So these are published measurements of the Hubble constant of the gradient of this line since 1920. You can see Edwin Hubble got the number um, very, very, very much larger than um, the numbers that we measure today. And this is all down to uncertainty and uh, problems with the measurements of the distances of the galaxies. So as um, scientists come up with different measures of distance or refine the calibration, so refine Um, our understanding of the distance measures, um, we kind of eventually come down to agreement. And by about 2000, by 2010, there was sort of general agreement of the value of the Hubble constant in these funny units. It's about 70 kilometers per second per megaparsec. So that's interesting. The reason I bring this up is that we're starting to disagree with each other again. So this is a much more recent plot. Um, this This is after John. So it's not a plot he made. I think it's published in Nature. Um, And you can see this is I've zoomed this right in. So this is a Hubble constant in kilometers per second per megaparsec, um, but now zoomed right in so that we're sort of roughly agreeing on numbers around 70 in the early part of the 2000s. Um, But people are now starting to disagree. Um, And these different colors here show different methods of measuring this. So we have the Cepheid's method, which I explained to you, Cepheid variables. Um, tip of the red giant branch, this TRGB, is another method for getting distances. Um, and actually, we can use those speckles in the CMB itself as a standard ruler um, and, and uh, measure the Hubble constant. And the CMB measurements of the Hubble constant are much lower again. Um, and so, you know, early on in this graph, in the sort of 2000 to 2008, everyone agreed it was all fine. Um, but as people have uh, become more confident in their measurements and dropped their errors, um, we start to see this disagreement. Yeah. Okay. Never mind what the Hubble constant is, um, just the concept that this recessional velocity can be used as a proxy for distance. So it it correlates with distance means you can use it to map the universe. You don't need to measure a distance. You just need to measure a redshift. And you can do this with just a simple spectra and it's much quicker. Um, And so we started doing this in the the late 1980s. This is, again, John Hooker and his collaborator, Margaret Geller. Um, This is an image of the sky where each dot is a galaxy. Um, that that John and his team had painstakingly measured spectra for. And if we move on, this is now going to be a little video showing that slice across the sky and showing it rotating um, as we have distances to all of these galaxies. And so so you can see this kind of map of the universe, which I think is, is sometimes a little hard to get your head around. We're here at the center and we put distance along the edge. And then this is like a sweep across the whole sky. Um, and this particular one, this CFA slice or the CFA stickman, is famous because it showed this sort of stick man, this large scale structure in galaxies, um, which was the first measurement of large scale structure in galaxies. But um, There's a lot of galaxies in the universe. And so John um, and his team were doing one spectra at a time. Um, we can introduce the digital revolution. So the Sun Digital Sky Survey comes back again. This is the telescope that I showed you before in Apache Point, New Mexico. Um, and this is showing the technique that we have where we put fibre optics into plug plates and are able to measure a thousand spectra at once. So you can imagine the speed up in terms of mapping the universe you get from going one spectra at a time to a thousand spectra at a time um, to measure these redshifts. And so this is what the original Sloan survey did and that we're continuing to do today, measure redshifts of galaxies. And here we have a much bigger one of these diagrams where again we're here at the centre, this is distance going away, and this is a sweep across the sky. In this example, it looks like a butterfly in two directions on the sky, um, both uh, one side, two sides of the Milky Way, actually. Um, and you can see the kind of fluff, um, the so-called cosmic web that we measure. Um, and why is this important? Um, I just want to kind of get to why this is important. And, and, and then I'll end for questions. Um, I mentioned that these speckles you see in the CMB are the seeds of stretcher formation, and so gravity brings these speckles, these very tiny speckles, and gravity over 14 billion years turns them into this large scale structure. So we're kind of probing the same thing when we see these speckles and we see this large scale structure. So one of the most fun or challenging articles I wrote for the book, actually, was this one on baryon acoustic oscillations. And John, uh, John appears again because he was the bio in this, in this article. Um, I hate this term, baryon acoustic oscillations. I'm not a fan of using uh, fancy words when simpler ones will work. Um, That is the technical term we use, Baryon acoustic oscillations. What we mean, though, is sound waves in normal matter. In the early universe um, was a plasma, and so sound waves were propagating through the material. Um, And this is an image of uh, a pebble dropping into a pond. It's not a sound wave, but it has similar properties. If you drop a pebble into a pond, you'll get these rings expanding outwards. And that's what you'll get in the sound wave. Now, if you can imagine dropping a pebble into a pond um, that's getting colder very quickly, You might imagine that those rings freeze into place and so that's kind of what happened in the early universe Um, there were sound waves and the universe was expanding and at some point um, the sound waves froze out and so there was a particular scale that was set into the early universe based on how big those sound waves could had got at that point Now that would be very simple to measure if it was just one sound wave right if it's just one pebble dropped into the pond very easy to measure that scale Now you have to imagine that there's just hundreds and thousands of overlapping sound waves, and this makes this incredibly complicated pattern. But if you measure very precisely the statistics, you can still get that scale. And that's important because um, we measure that scale. We have measured that scale using the Sloan Digital Sky Survey data. It's important because it shows that we understand the physics, but also it provides one of these standard rulers so we can use it to measure Um, the expansion rate of the universe. And we can actually do the same thing with the CMB in the very early universe and then with the map of the galaxy much more recently. So this is the most technical plot I have here. Um, This shows the expansion rate. This is the Hubble constant, effectively. But now, not just now, showing it over the history of the universe. Because sound, because light has a finite speed, in astronomy, when we look very far away we can look back in time and so we're able to look at earlier universes the Planck prediction here is what we think this should look like based on measurements of the cosmic microwave background that's that black line <coughs> and all of the colorful dots are actual measurements of them now you might have heard about the accelerated expansion of the universe and what we mean by that is that this line comes back up again and it has to come back up again um, you can see not just on the Planck prediction, but because our actual measurements of the expansion rate of the universe go up and down. OK, so back to the slide I started with, or almost the slide I started with, this, um, the shape of this trumpet is supposed to be indicating this accelerated expansion of the universe. And, you know, I could pretend I could explain what's causing that. We don't actually know. And we we name what we what we don't know, dark energy. We know that dark energy is uh, three times as much energy density as the gravitating matter in the universe. So when we sort of count up the total energy density of the universe, uh, 75 percent of it is this dark energy and 25 percent of it is dark matter and normal matter. So we know um, that that is true, but we don't know what it is. Um, We don't even know what it might be, really. There's some predictions or there's some theories that that have it be a change of gravity. Um, But it's a big puzzle for cosmology today. And so um, it's very, very interesting. So I think I'm going to stop at that point, um, and I will skip over the fate of the universe and just end with my thanks and take questions.
2: Hello everybody, welcome back. I hope you've all refreshed your glasses. Welcome back, Karen. Um, I'm really pleased to announce that Dave, the drummer's question has risen to the top, Um, but I will read it to you. We've had a little bit of a discussion about this. Uh, What do you think about the new evidence for a potential parallel universe going backward in time that was reported in New Scientist recently? Is it a thing?
1: Well, everything is a thing. Um, And I was sort of sharing uh, before we we came back live that I don't think this is a big thing. Um, if, if this is something that lots of cosmologists believe, you'd be seeing lots of chatter about it, even in today's world, um, on uh, on Twitter, indeed. Um, so cosmologists and astronomers are pretty active on Twitter. Um, and that's that's one place where I engage. Um, I had a quick skim of it. Um, it. What it looks to be is particle physics evidence for some kinds of antiparticles that could potentially be explained by a parallel universe. I'm a bit I'm going to be skeptical on this and say I think um, we need more evidence to claim that we've definitely detected a parallel universe.
2: Right. Thank you. I'm actually just going to interrupt the Q&A a bit just because we've just had a report on how much we've raised so far with the donations. Everyone's been wonderfully generous. Thank you so much. We've raised £750. That's just Stupendous! That's an amazing amount of money, and that means that with the match donations, we're going. We're so far, we're going to be up to two thousand five hundred. It's a really worthy cause. Thank you so much, everyone. That's um,
1: wonderful. Thanks, it, everyone.
2: Yeah, and I think given your thoughts when we spoke earlier this week, uh, I'm I'm sure it, it it makes you feel better about talking about such a light. Yeah,
1: well. I was reflecting that the, the the schedule seemed a bit wrong. That Angela Tsai's talk would be very appropriate today, given. The events, and um, I hope to actually be able to join and, and listen to Angela. Um, so I'm very much a fan of her work. So, right, moving on to Sean
2: Ellis, who has been very busy in Slido. Um, the gravitational wave astronomers have recently announced that the that large neutron stars are likely to have quark liquid cores. How do they know? <laughs>
1: um, so this, again, is it's as much like the sort of baryon acoustic oscillations, very detailed patterns. And so um, the gravitational wave signal that comes from when neutron stars merge with each other or neutron stars merge with black holes is has a very, um, you know, you can measure the shape of it very precisely. And people model that shape and um, the details of that shape can tell you about the internal structure of neutron stars. Um, I'm actually married to an astronomer who works on neutron star uh, gravity and like internal structure of neutron stars, he's a massive skeptic of quarks in the centres of neutron stars. Um, so I'm going to have to say um, uh, that 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 he doesn't think there's any evidence yet um, for quarks inside neutron stars. He thinks it's likely to be normal uh, uh, neutron matter. But um, I don't know. I mean, it will be modelling. It's modelling of the signal that comes from the gravitational wave uh, that they create when they when they merge. And and it's so amazing that we can do that now. Um, so. It's really exciting. So
2: it's, it's theories, really, still.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, well, everything's a theory at some level, right? Right. We, we kind of, you make a prediction. Um, I was teaching Astro 101 this past uh, term. Um, so, you, you know, the scientific method, you make some kind of prediction um, and then you test that prediction against evidence. And so the evidence here is uh, the gravitational wave signal and the predictions are the models of what neutron stars with different interior, what their signals would look like when they merge. And so... Yeah. Someone has made a prediction for a quark interior and that matches well with a signal. And that's where that's that will have come from.
2: Right. That's great. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Gerald from uh, is it Cologne Skeptics in Germany asks, where can we get the female astronomers Lego shirt?
1: Right. So I was trying to work this out It's a while ago that I got it and I was looking actually at the slide and it says on the slide. That it's from ShirToid.com. I don't know if that's the best place to get it, but shurtoid.com appear to sell it. And they also sell a similar one um, based on the characters in hidden figures. Well, characters, they're real people, right? The um the female black women uh, computers at NASA um that, that the movie uh came out about, which is a nice one.
2: I imagine your daughters will be interested in that, Gerald. Uh, good present. Um, next question is from Duncan Power. Besides gravitational effects, do we have any other evidence for dark matter? If not, why do we believe it's dark matter? Oh, it's just jumped. And it's just jumped again.
1: Um, People are voting.
2: (laughs) Why do we believe that it's dark matter rather than the effects of an unknown sixth
1: force? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, again, it comes back to um, our ideas about models. And I think you can show the picture that I'm showing on my screen. Um, This is one of the biggest pieces of evidence that we have um, that dark matter is a particle rather than a change in force. Um, This is a picture of something called the bullet cluster. And it's actually three pictures that have been overlaid in different colors. So you can see um, the image of the galaxies and it's gonna have some foreground stars as well. So we're looking at this through our own galaxy, right? Um, So that's a foreground star with the spikes, but you've got galaxies in the sort of orangey color (coughs) <coughs> excuse me um then you have in the red is uh hot gas so hot gas which creates x-rays and in the blue is where we think most of the mass is based on gravitational lensing actually so it is still a gravitational technique but the bending of light um, and what's happened here is that these two galaxies sorry two galaxy clusters have collided with each other the dark matter doesn't interact at all except gravitationally so those two big blue blobs have kind of passed through each other more quickly than the gas which has kind of um, has some shocks you can kind of see the shape of the shock and it's sort of got some drag forces and is now dragging behind where the dark matter is and so this shows that dark matter and the gas in the clusters have kind of offset from each other so you can't do that if it's a force you can only do that if it's um, a, a particle you can't separate the gravity from the stuff if it's a force. You can only separate the extra gravity from the visible stuff if, it's, if the extra gravity is caused by a particle. Um, and so this is taken as really strong evidence that dark matter is a particle, not a changed force, but people are continuing to investigate uh, so-called MOND theories um, that could explain some of what we see in galaxies, and people will continue to do that, I think, for a long time still, but most astronomers are very confident that dark matter is some kind of particle thanks oh so if you stop sharing that now that would be <laughs> oh that
2: was nice actually <laughs> um, yep so sean ellis is asking another question um and iirc who are iirc oh right <laughs> yeah because sean it's me reading these questions um so if i remember correctly uh, i've seen galaxy collisions where the galaxies collided but the dark matter continued yes are the dark matter free galaxies spinning themselves apart
1: so i think that was actually someone remembering the bullet cluster um so this is the the image i just showed and so it's a galaxy cluster not a galaxy um and uh and so where you see that you know the material the, the dark matter has continued well and leave left behind most material um yes um that that cluster is not in gravitational equilibrium, to use the technical term. So it would not be um, necessary. Yes, it might be kind of falling apart and moving like exciting things are happening. It's merging. Um, We do also find some galaxies that have very little evidence for dark matter. And ironically, that's yet another uh, piece of evidence that dark matter is a particle, because if you can find galaxies that do not have dark matter in them, it must be a thing that you can remove from galaxies. Uh, and so there's some very low uh, luminosity, very, very small galaxies um, where the motions of the stars appear to not need much in the way of dark matter to explain um, the galaxy being held together. Uh,
2: right. The next the next person is anonymous, but they're particularly interested. I think they wanted to hear the rest of your talk because they say, oh, what were you going to say about the fate of the
1: universe? Yes. Yes. Well, I'm quite happy. I'll I'll do this sort of quick version of the last few slides of my talk. Um, And I can also report I just got a message that power turned on in my house. So I'm very happy about that. Um, Anyway, um, so if you go if we can go back to screen sharing, I can just show very quickly um, some of the slides. And actually, this is some of the most beautiful, I thought, illustrations in the book. Um, Typically not articles I I wrote myself, um, which is why I kind of uh, focused on other parts of the book. but some beautiful illustrations of what's going to happen um, in the sort of the the future history of the earth. Um, It's, it's not very cheerful for the most part. So, but it is a very long time away. So I wanted to point out that in uh, humanity recorded history is about 5,000 years long. Um, And it's been about a hundred million years since the dinosaurs roamed the earth. Um, And uh, so 1 billion years, which is about the amount of time we have left before the oceans boil Um, is 200,000 times the span of human history. So we have 200,000 chances again before the oceans boil, because what's going to happen is the sun is a star um, and stars do run out of fuel. And eventually the sun is going to be very gradually expanding and getting hotter. And in about a billion years, we'll be hot enough to boil off the oceans of the Earth. So you can see sort of some of that visualization here. And in about five billion years... So a, a long, long time in the future, um, the Earth will most likely be swallowed by the expanding Sun. Um, so this is all a very long time in the future, but but all not great news. Um, so some more visualizations here. You can see the Sun expanding, and it will swallow the inner planets, Mercury, Venus, and possibly Mars. And we're not quite sure as the Sun expands, gravity will change a bit, so the orbits of some of the planets might change. So Mars may or may not get swollen, uh, swallowed, but but um, Mercury, Venus, and Earth will. We need the
2: TARDIS, really, don't we, so we can watch it.
1: We need to get on with interstellar travel if we're going to be around. But we've got 200,000 times the span of human history to figure it out, right? So um, that's a long time. Uh, so hopefully we can, we can figure out interstellar travel as a, as a species on that timescale. Um, this is a beautiful illustration as well. This is showing the life cycle kind of of the sun. So you've got the normal sun now expanding as a red dwarf kind of expanding more and then eventually turning into a white dwarf. And this sort of hint at the planetary nebula, which is the sort of the outer layers of the sun, will get puffed off into space. Very, very beautiful. Um, so as well as the sun expanding to swallow the Earth, at about the same time scale, um, the nearest galaxy to us will uh, will start colliding with the Milky Way. Um, so galaxies collide all the time. Even though we live in an expanding universe, gravity pulls everything together. Um, and so um, I kind of talk about, you know, galaxies can move around the universe, much like you can move around on top of the moving walkway in, a, in an airport, right? The walkway kind of carries you along. The expansion of the universe is carrying things along, but stuff can move around on top of that. And that's why galaxies end up merging, um, a bit like sort of raindrops merging as they fall down um, the window pane. Um, some really beautiful images from space. Um, this is a, an image of the night sky sort of now it's a very dark location i took the credit off it i think the um, photographer is called stefan vetter um so this is the milky way stretching across the sky um and you can just pick out the Andromeda galaxy here just a little galaxy it's the most distant thing you can see with the naked eye i once saw it from outside the winchester science center when i was living uh in portsmouth so you can definitely see it um And here is a visualization of it getting closer to us. So you can see Andromeda getting closer and closer until it starts merging with us. And eventually, um, the two galaxies will merge. Um, The space between stars and galaxies is so large, this is like gas, this is like clouds merging, like it's very unlikely any two stars will collide. Um, But but nevertheless, will be an interesting event at about the same time that the sun swallows the Earth. Um, And then if we want to kind of go on even further, Um, I actually Charles I think wrote this article I actually really like it it's hard to talk about the heat death of the universe in a positive way but Charles talks about the ultimate perfection of um, you know the universe will be incredibly smooth and and there'll be no chaos anywhere each horizon will contain just a single atom or subatomic particle and this is the ultimate fate of a universe where the um, expansion is accelerating right we will keep expanding faster and faster and faster until we end up with a universe where the temperature is very close to absolute zero and and each universe just contains one particle but the the time scales are ridiculous so 10 to the 100 is bigger than a google um but that's kind of it's more than that years in the future and i worked this out it's up being 10 to the 97 times the span of human history it basically doesn't matter it's so long in the future um this will never impact anything um but it's interesting to think that this is the ultimate fate of our universe I'm just going to inter- in, yes. um,
2: say something a little bit frivolous now. I've just found a new new way of identifying uh, astronomers and physicists is that they round everything up to noughts. Yes. you. I mean, you said 100,000 years for the dinosaurs. That's the kind of thing Brian Cox would have said, wasn't? isn't it? Millions, billions, hundreds, thousands. Yes. Yeah. The rest of us have sixes and fives in that number. But now I know how to identify an astronomer.
1: Yeah, we don't like to be too precise. So astronomers, <laughs> you know... I'm I'm often wound with this with my students. People will be very precise. Engineers are very precise. They need to be. We need the bridges to be built precisely. But physicists and astronomers will tend to like to round numbers because there's usually that kind of uncertainty. And also, I can remember rounded numbers better. Yes. Especially for giving talks. I remember the rounded numbers. Brian Park has someone feeding him numbers, I'm sure. So so, so, there's millions and billions he needs feeding.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so Anonymous says, uh, are there any, I really like this question, are there any big ideas from science fiction, such as Warp Drive, that you think mm. might be possible one day? My favourite would be the Ansible, the instantaneous communication.
1: Oh, yeah, yes. not having to worry about time delays. Yes, we the uh, fans yeah. there. What is it? The Expanse we've been watching. I like how that actually portrays light travel time. So you can't talk instantaneously with people across the solar system. That's, that's quite nice. Um, uh, I think um, one that I'd really like would be the transporter. And I think I have definitely read that that, that people have transported very, very small things. So turn them into information and sort of beamed them across space. Um, wouldn't that be good? You, really, I mean, we sort of solve the problems of dual careers and commuting. If you could just be transported to wherever you needed to be instantaneously. Um, also, it'd be quite I mean, I think it'd be very disappointing if we are not able to travel faster than the speed of light. I mean, it'd be really nice to be able to explore the universe and, and go and do those things. As Everything we know about in physics says that the speed of light really is the ultimate speed limit. There's really no way. You need infinite energy to reach it. Any microscopic particle that hit you would explode your spacecraft. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why traveling so fast is not going to be possible. So it'd be really nice if we could figure out that there's a way to get around that by entering some parallel universe or something. But um, not as far as we know. It would yeah. Um, yeah. So
2: Helen asks, you mentioned some of my astrophysics heroines. Was it a conscious choice to choose female physicists to profile in the chapters?
1: To some extent, yes. I mean, obviously, there are men who have done important things in the history of cosmology, too. Um, but they've actually typically had a lot of stuff written about them. So I wanted to make sure that the women whose uh, contributions have been overlooked um, were not overlooked in this book.
2: Good. I, I, that's many of us like to hear that. Um, there's another question that I think you might find quite interesting uh, It's from Anonymous again, who says, I have a friend who thinks the earth is flat. The moon landings are fake, along with all the other un, unusual other theories. Where do I start with him? So
1: this stuff is difficult and it's something I have an interest in and I'm, I won't claim to be an expert. But one thing I've been reading about is the importance of yes and when talking with people um, who disagree with you. So trying not to say you're wrong immediately, but trying and trying not to be dismissive or making fun of them. I think it's very easy for us to to sort of make fun of people who believe the earth is flat. But I, one of the things I really like about that group of people is the emphasis they have on testing stuff themselves. Right. I think that's fantastic and very much in line with the skeptics philosophy. Um, they're just kind of getting the wrong end of the stick with some of the tests. And so one thing I think would be good is, is, okay, well, what if the Earth was flat? Let's explore that. What would happen? You know, what what are some of the consequences? And can we convince ourselves that it can't be true? Um, I've seen stuff about how, you know, water is always flat, um, but then you can find an image of a globe of water in space that's a sphere Mm -hmm. on the International Space Station. Um, Just kind of, I think, you know, not, I really feel quite strongly that we are doing these people a disservice if we just make fun of them and dismiss them and don't want to engage with them. They all desperately want to be scientists, right? They're super interested in science. So let's help them um, to explore their interests and hopefully help them to find out for themselves that they're wrong. Um, there's all kinds of psychological stuff that it's going to be very difficult for the people to admit they're wrong, particularly the leaders of these organizations. It's going to be very, very hard. You know, They've, they've become famous um made a lot of money in some cases by pro- pro- being proponents of these views, um, it's going to be very hard for them to admit that they're wrong. And so they're probably not the right people to start with. But
2: um, Some of them may have decided that they're wrong, but be stuck, I suppose. Yeah, well, you can kind
1: of imagine getting stuck in a, in, a, in that kind of problem, right? Um, it's very interesting. I, w- I recently watched the um, – there's a movie, a Netflix movie, about flat earth societies that I recently watched. It's very interesting. And if you're interested in this, I think it will give you some things to think about. But, yes, I think – trying to bring people along and trying to work with them where they are.
2: And there's one I like here. Um, I completely understand the question. I think that's why I like it. Left field, unimportant logistics question. The SDSS is open when working. How does the mirror stay free of dust, bugs and bird byproducts?
1: (laughs) Very nice. Um, Well, it gets cleaned once a year. It's one thing. So it doesn't entirely. Um, There is a building that rolls over it. Um, so the images you've seen, it looks like it's just, you know, a telescope that's out in the open because obviously those are the best pictures. Uh, but you can find on the, on the web, we have uh, the SCSS has a YouTube channel and you can find a video of a night of observing and you can see the building rolling off the telescope. And so during the day on nights when it's wet or, you know, when it can't be open, it, it's safely enclosed. And then you're right when it's open. I guess stuff can happen. Um, but and, and it gets cleaned once a year in a special facility
2: that was from sean i'm going to follow it up with another one from sean which is a lot more complicated we're looking at microwave background radiation with the entire universe in the way yes. how do we correct for that to an accuracy of a few parts
1: per million yeah well that's a that's a very very good question and and what 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 we do is we look at multiple microwave frequencies and the stuff in the foreground the rest of the universe has predictable spectral shapes and so we're able to actually subtract that. Um, and you're right, it's very, very hard to do that accurately. Um, so you will find actually that the, patent, the, the very accurate measurements will exclude parts of the sky where we don't believe that that's been done well. So, for example, where our own galaxy is, that that stripe across the sky where the galaxy is, it's very hard to, to remove the microwave emissions from the galaxy and dust and stuff in the galaxy very precisely. Um, Brian May's PhD thesis on the zodiacal light um, uh, is, is relevant, actually. Um, and so um, the zodiacal light is dust in the solar system, which creates microwave radiation and so potentially has some impact. Uh, and so, yeah, so it has to be modelled and it has to be measured at multiple frequencies to try to subtract it. Thanks.
2: And Alex has asked the next question. There was a news item lately claiming dark matter may not actually exist. Is that possible or is it a minority view?
1: At this point, it's a minority view. There are definitely some uh, scientists who think that it's possible dark matter doesn't exist as a thing and that it's a modification of gravity. But the majority of the community believe the evidence that we have, like the bullet cluster, like galaxies without dark matter, like the incredible match that dark matter models have with so many different parts of of, uh, observational cosmology, of so many different parts of the evidence that we have. Um, The majority of people are believe that it's a particle of some kind. And there are candidates even for what the particle is. So, you know, there are ideas for what it could be. Um, So the level of our lack of knowledge with dark matter is much less than it is with dark energy. So with dark energy, you definitely find a lot of the community talking about modifications to gravity. Maybe it's not really a thing. Like, there's definitely a big part of the community talking about that, but that's a totally separate thing than dark matter, the material in galaxies. We really feel quite confident it's a particle of some kind.
2: Right. Thanks, Um, Rebecca says. Back to the thirty-second series books. Would they be suitable to read to young children? Uh, And if not to young children, what what age do you think they are suitable for?
1: I I definitely have uh, friends actually who have thirty-second books in their house, and they have children. But my kids are about ten and thirteen. They're not about. They are exactly ten and thirteen. I think they would read this. They think that because mom does astronomy, it's not the most interesting thing. But um, you know, if you have kids who are into it, I think. Ten-year-old could probably read it. An interested ten-year-old, yeah, no problem. Uh, yeah.
2: Uh, speaking of someone whose kids are a bit older than that, you may find that their partners are more interested than the children themselves are. Anyway, moving swiftly on from that one, um, Anonymous here asks, the three ways of calculating the Hubble constant had error bars which don't overlap.
1: Mm. Why is this? Well, we don't know. Right? And so that was sort of one of the points of that slide is that that's an interesting puzzle for observational cosmologists right now. Um, different methods of, of measuring the upper constant we don't agree so what's going on well either someone or maybe everyone are under underestimating their errors someone maybe has some kind of systematic error that's not counted for so that the point's going to move a lot or there's some kind, some physics something going on in the universe that we don't we don't understand yet it's always an interesting part point mm-hmm. in in uh, sort of observations when you have these sort of non-overlapping error bars you're trying to measure the same thing different ways we do it all the time in cosmology and astronomy and if they don't agree that's the fun bit that's the bit where we're like oh there's more to do um it's also nice when they agree because then you know you've got it right so you can't just
2: pump for one of them you like best then
1: no i'm not going to do that (laughs) i I have opinions but uh they're not very uh evidence-based so i'll keep them to myself.
2: Somebody else has been thinking about the four fundamental forces, gravity, electromagnetic, strong and weak nuclear,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and saying, are they just conceivably knots and tears in the foremost, which is gravity?
1: Hmm. That's interesting. I, it, It's been a puzzle for a theoretical physicists for a long time to how to combine gravity with the other forces. Um, so, we, you know, we talk about electromagnetism very comfortably, um, the electroweak force. Um, so you can go back in the early early uh, Early universe there's a period of time when uh, electromagnetism and the weak force basically combine um the strong force goes in there as well, so you know those those three forces are easy enough to combine gravity we've struggled with a the ability to get a quantum gravity, a theory of quantum gravity. so when you think about the singularity in the center of a black hole or the singularity that's the big bang, both of those are very tiny, so we need quantum physics, and they're also um you know very uh strong gravity or the whole universe so we start to need general relativity we need einstein's theory of gravity and no one yet has fully been able to combine those two um and so uh so that's also interesting for us there's more to learn there's more to understand we don't really know what causes gravity we don't really understand it um so i think i'm not going to speculate if the other forces could be caused by tears in gravity because that seems completely out of my understanding but it's an interesting question for
0: sure right
2: i'm going
1: to ask just a couple more questions and then we'll
2: move on to the uh drum roll the pub oh the pub name yes yes so um i'll leave that one till last uh actually oh what's the next one I'm going to ask you a scientific one first, and then actually a couple of fun ones. Has anyone managed, because this, this is the next one in the list, has anyone managed to make an image correlating the CMB and the observed galaxy galaxy clusters?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you have to think there's a time difference, but yeah, people definitely look. And so, you know, the observed clusters, we're looking at later than the CMB. So they're not going to be the same clump, but people definitely look at correlating the two. Um, there's techniques that look at lensing in, in the CMB, so you're actually measuring the lensing signal of the foreground clusters. Um, this is definitely something that, that people do. But yeah, but bear in mind it's not it's not that clump makes this galaxy cluster because those are at two different times. Right.
2: I'm quite excited with with just how much people have engaged with your talk actually and they're asking really quite detailed questions. Um, One here, are galaxies expanding along with the universe? That's a great
1: question. I love that question. I I remember a kid asking me once, "Are my eyeball's getting further apart because of the expansion of the universe. It was really, really fun. You can kind of think of, of every little sphere in the universe as being its own little expansion area and its expansion properties depend on the density of material inside it. So my head is very dense compared to the rest of the universe, not expanding because the gravity and actually electromagnetic forces inside my head are keeping it together. The earth not expanding. Galaxies, the gravitational force is keeping them together. So they're not expanding. It's only on the scale of bigger than galaxy clusters that we start to see the expansion really. Um, and that's because you kind of you have to make these spheres and inside that sphere there's a lot of material and so it's caused the universe to be collapsed in that sphere but then when the sphere gets big enough it's expanding right hopefully and those, that was i got excited about that answer sorry i was just, but uh and that's yes. really interesting i mean
2: I, i'd never talked about the eyeball bit but now now i will um not um, expand you don't need to worry about it you don't need to worry oh, about the expansion the universe you. <laughs> between your eyeballs it's not happening right. so my head's too dense basically yes right yeah um, <laughs> The, the last question has to be asked. Because it has a little winky at the end of it. And it reminds me of my horror when I was in Cape Town and Orion was upside down. Oh. Uh, the question is, do galaxies in the southern hemisphere sky spiral the other way?
1: Uh, no. Uh, so the, the direction, the orientation of spirals is is random which it should be, um, because we believe the universe is kind of isotropic and homogeneous. So there shouldn't be a preferred rotation sense. It's actually one of the things early on measured in Galaxy Zoo. Um, interestingly, the, the first measurement without a calibration from Galaxy Zoo did suggest there was uh, a favoured spin. Um, but it turns out it was probably something to do with either the psychology of people or the site layout. People were more likely, when uncertain, to hit one of them than the other one. And so we actually had to put in galaxies that were flipped and found the same signal, even in the flipped galaxies, to just sort of calibrate out this human or possibly site design measurement. But yes,
0: but absolutely su- no evidence.
1: By the way, a great su- way to talk to your friend who who likes the flat Earth. See if they'd like to go with you to the southern hemisphere and see things upside down. Anyway, yeah, okay. it's always fun to do that. I like doing that. The moon upside down is fun. Right. Yeah.
2: Thank you. I think we'll, we'll, we'll call it today. there. We've had about half an hour of Q&A, which I think is usually, um, it's usually feels about right.
0: That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thulabora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.